0: First Samuel, chapter fourteen. As you're turning there, let me uh, begin in prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word, which is a true and steadfast word for our souls this morning. Uh, Lord, that, that we don't have to be tossed about with every uh, wind and doctrine, but that we have a sure and steady anchor in the faith. And so, this morning, as we look at the scriptures, I pray that we would be transformed by them. May we see you more clearly. May you convict us of the sins that are, uh, live in our hearts, and may we be uh, transformed from one degree of glory to the other as we look more and more like Jesus because of your word. It's in his name we pray, amen. Take a drink real quick. Last week I started the sermon by explaining that the Bible is a true book. Uh, it's a literal book, and by that I mean it's a book filled with stories that actually happened actually happened. But I also said last week and explained that the, book is, uh, the Bible is a book full of symbolism. And what I mean by symbolism is that there are biblical patterns throughout the scripture that when taken together help to provide layers of meaning and layers of understanding to particular text. And so what I mean by symbolism is that it's like we all know that symbolism is in the Bible like when we read Revelation it talks about this great dragon coming up out the sea. Y'all realize like there's not a literal dragon going to come up out to sea, right? And that the, you know, the, the, what it talks about is not really Apache helicopters. I know we can get into that some other time, but uh, we all know that the symbols in the Bible that exist like that, but there's other symbols too. And last week I gave two examples, uh, the example of marriage, that uh, we find in the beginning, opening paragraphs of scripture, and how marriage then becomes a picture or a symbol of how the Lord Jesus relates to the church, Ephesians chapter 5. The other examples from tracing the encounters of a man who is, re- who is the representative of a covenant or the covenant head, meeting a woman at the well, right? So we looked at Abraham, servant, meeting Rebecca, right? We, we looked at Jesus meeting the woman at the well, right? And when you understand that there's symbols in the Bible, right, it, becomes, uh, it be- provides more meaning and more depth to the story. We also consider the fact that the opening chapters of Genesis, that in those chapters we see... Uh, The downfall of mankind and rebellion of man against God in three ways. The first was the downfall in relation to God as father. This is seen in the fact that Adam refuses to worship God, the father, as he should be. And instead decides to worship and follow his own heart and disobeys the father's command. The second downfall is in relation to God as the son. This is seen in the breakdown in relationship between brother, actual brothers, between mankind, which appears primarily in Genesis chapter 4, where we see Cain slay his brother Abel. And then the third downfall is in relation to God as the spirit. And this is seen in Genesis chapter 6, where the sons intermarry with the daughters of men, which we'll get more into that next week. But it is from this that we derive the main point of last week's sermon and the main point of this week's sermon You got it. The the main point of next week's sermon, which is this. The Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. The Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. These are, if you will, the three tasks given to followers of Christ. All three of these tasks are played out in our human relationships as well. Stay with me here because this becomes important, actually, how I understand the Bible and how I think it would help you in understanding the scriptures. Uh, in our relationship to God as father, he has given us a primary picture, pattern in the real world around us, and how we are to relate to him, in the picture and pattern of how we relate to our earthly father. Stay with me here. So in our relationship to like, we know how we should relate to God as father because God has a good picture of earthly fathers. So in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 11, Jesus says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts uh, to your children... How much more will your heavenly father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who seek him? Jesus here makes the link crystal clear that in holding up earthly fathers as examples of what the heavenly father is actually like. In our relationship to God as son, our primary picture is pattern in how we relate to our earthly brothers and sisters. Jesus said this when uh, they approached him in Mark chapter 3. Uh, and they said, hey, your, your, mother, and brother, uh, your mother and your brothers are, are searching for you outside. And Jesus looks at them and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus in these verses is saying that if people are doing the will of the Father, then they are his brothers. And in John chapter 13, Jesus points again to the relationship that we have with one another as the way in which we are identified with him, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in our relationship to God as spirit, our primary picture and is patterned in how we relate to strangers around us. Jesus, after being resurrected from the dead, but not yet ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, links the idea of being witnesses to God the Spirit. He says this to his disciples it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice he says that when the Spirit has come upon you, then you will be my witnesses in all of the world. So the Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness, last week we began working through First Samuel 13, which is the beginning of a section of Scripture where we see the downfall of Saul as God's anointed one, as God's king, as the one who would reign in God's righteous steed. And we see the downfalls in three ways. We see how he relates to the Father, how he relates to the Son, and how he relates to the spirit. Last week we covered his failure in worship to the Father. This week we see how he fails in his work with his son. Jonathan. And just as a heads up, we've got a lot of text to cover in chapter 14. I don't know if you read it this week in preparation. Uh, There's a lot of verses. Combine that with the fact that I'm now seven minutes into this sermon and I have to be wrapped up at 35 minutes, we're going to move quickly. So buckle up. Some of you are like, you move quickly every week. What are you talking about? It's okay. It's okay. Uh, as a reminder, let me quickly set the stage for 1 Samuel 14. The Philistine army is looking to destroy and take back the land that Samuel has taken from them. Under Samuel's leadership in the opening chapters of Samuel, we see that the Philistines are forced out of the land. But now in, 14, uh, or in, in chapter 13, uh, they're they looking to reclaim that land. We're introduced in the first couple verses of chapter 13 to a man named Jonathan. Who was successful in attacking an outpost in the the Philistines, which ignited all out war. We also know that the only two people of the Israelite army that have swords or any weapons of any kind are Saul and Jonathan. Moreover, most of the men who were in the Israelite army counted the cost, looked at the enemy on the horizon, decided it's not worth it. And so we see them becoming defectors by switching to the Philistine side of the conflict or simply deserting the army and hiding in the hills or in baskets. With that, let's pick up the text this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, so this is the first time we figure out who this man is, this is the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, "'Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side.' But he did not tell his father." Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah on the pomegranate cave of Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Abijah, the son of At- Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that the Jonathan had gone. So here we see that Jonathan has decided that unlike his father Saul, he's tired of sitting around. Notice that in verse one, Jonathan is the one who looks at the young man with him and says, let us go. Let us go over. This is contrasted with Saul who is in verse two, staying. So you got Jonathan saying, let's go and Saul stay. And this is a comparing and contrasting these two, the men. The the author then includes a quick call out to the fact that one of the men with Saul is related all the way back to Eli. And if you remember the battle between Israel and the Philistines in chapter four, you remember Eli, who oversaw that battle, uh, did not win. It didn't go well for the Israelites. Uh, in fact, not only were they defeated, but the ark of the Lord was taken into enemy hands. And what the author is wanting to do is he's, he's wanting you to see that there's this contrast between how Jonathan will engage the Philistines versus how Saul will try to engage the Philistines. Look at verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other is Sine. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. Jonathan and his armor-bearer here get to the, where the Philistines are. And notice the author now stops, and he, he, he kind of goes into kind of great detail uh, of what the terrain of the battlefield Looks like he says that on one side there's this sharp cliff, and on the other side, another sharp cliff, and in between is this sort of river of sorts. Uh, so in order for Jonathan to engage the Philistines, he's going to have to go down, and then come back up. Now Paul's there. Why would the author spend this much time in telling this story and describing the land? Why would he? Why would he tell? Why would he tell about the terrain that Jonathan, as one armor bearer, have to cross through? Well, for one, it gives you a bit of insight into the battle itself, doesn't it? The odds are stacked against Jonathan as he comes to the Philistines. The Philistines will have the high ground. Also, he he mentions that the terrain is being rocky, right? These aren't lush green rolling hills, right? Have you ever been out in the foothills of uh, or in southern Ohio? Uh, the it's it's rolling hills. I don't. You guys know what hills are around here? I don't think so. Not really. Uh, but anyway, that's not what Jonathan's facing. He's got cliffs he's having to climb down and then up. So one reason that the author has given us this detail is that he's wanting you to see the odds are ever stacked against Jonathan. And yet he moves anyway. However, I think the more important reason the author is including this in the story is because of the movement that Jonathan must take. You see, this is a story about going down in order to come back up type of situation. It's a a, a losing in order to win type of story. In other words, it's a picture of death and then resurrection. Notice that even the names of these cliffs reinforce the symbolism. Sina means thorn and Bozes means shining. You see, it's a picture of Jonathan descending to death before ascending to victory. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Notice in that is like, well, maybe not. But he says, let's do it anyway. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. This is a great battle plan, by the way. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan looked to his armor-bearer and said, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel." And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and the armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. In these verses, we see Jonathan tells the man with him, Hey, hey, if if we go over there, and they say, come on up, then we will know that the Lord has given them into our hand. And that's exactly what happens. In verse 11, it says that they show themselves to the Philistines. And they invite Jonathan and his man up to show them a, a, a thing or two. Right? They're going to show them what's up. Now, what I want you to notice from these verses is the faith that drives the trust and ultimately the work of Jonathan. Notice in verse 6 what he calls the enemy. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised What Jonathan is doing here is he's seeing the world, not just through the lens that the world sees itself through in terms of merely geopolitical factors, but he's seeing the world through the lens that God sees the world. This is massively important for us to understand. Jonathan doesn't say, come on, let us go attack these Philistines. This is important. He says, let us attack these uncircumcised. In other words, for Jonathan, this is not just a war between Israel and Philistine. This is a war between the covenant people of God and the enemies of God. If you're familiar with the the book of Samuel, all this does sound a bit familiar, does it not? A story of the people of God cowering in fear, and then one man unwilling to bend in their faith and trust in God and deciding to take a stand. You see, Jonathan here is a forerunner, a prototype, if you will, to David in just merely two chapters. Where David will say, before the Philistine armies, uh, he said, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, what Jonathan is doing is he's seeing the world for what it truly is. He doesn't say, these are just like our enemies, like these are just uh, Philistines who like, we just merely disagree with. He said, no, 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 these are uncircumcised folks. We're the, we're the covenant people of God. We are the chosen people of God. Therefore, why do we fear? The author is doing two things here. One, he's preparing you to know who to look for to replace the king. Remember, Saul in the previous chapter has lost the kingdom. Uh, Samuel said to Saul that uh, that no longer will the kingdom be with you. It will be with one after God's own heart. And number two, he's contrasting Jonathan with Saul. You see, Saul is paralyzed with fear while Jonathan is moved with faith. And so we see that Jonathan's faith has moved him to action and that the Lord has given him a small victory at the first strike. Now look at verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked. Behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, and behold, Jonathan his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-haven. So after Jonathan and his armor bearer break uh, into the Philistine camp, and they attack him, killing 20 men. Uh, uh, the, the, the panic ensues in the Philistine army, right? That Saul, so much so that Saul, hiding in his cave, sees in the multitude uh, pockets of dispersion. And he says, what in the world is going on here? He says, hey, hey, take a census, see who's missing. What's, something's happening. And he finds out that uh, his own son and his armor bearer have left. So then Saul does something important here. Saul sees the Philistine army begin to break up, begin to disperse. And when Saul notices that, he says, Hey, 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 do we, do we have the Ark of God? Bring that over here. Let me, let me see that. Right? And the Ark of God was what? It was the picture in the presence of where God resided. Right? Was, if you wanted to commune with God, you brought the Ark of God near it, or you went to the Ark. Of God, so in a, in a sense, what Saul is doing here is he's seeing the battle start to uh, start to happen. Right, they're starting to disperse, and he says, "Hey, we need to ask God what to do here." And so he says, "Bring it, bring it." Now, what happens in verse nineteen is very important because what effectively uh, Saul does is he, as he's talking with the priests, as he's consulting with Yahweh by means of the ark, the battle grows more and more out of hand. And so Saul tells Ahijah, hey, hey, stop. Stop, 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 stop. Withdraw your hand. Now remember, what's happening here is Saul is consulting with Yahweh on what to do about this battle. And as he's trying to consult with the priest and consult with God, he's seeing that, oh, no, the enemy is arising. Oh, no, it looks like it's about to start. he says, "Hey, hey, priest, just stop for a minute, just stop. In other words, Saul is telling the Lord to be quiet. Don't miss this. He's telling the Lord, "Shh, not right now." And this have massive ramifications on the rest of Saul's life, as we see later in this very chapter. Saul seeks the Lord for an answer, but the Lord refuses to answer him. Later in the book of Samuel, the Lord refuses to answer Saul again, and so Saul instead seeks out a medium or a, a witch, if you will, to know what to do see, so what, what happens here is Saul silences God, and then God becomes silent with Saul. Friends, it's a dangerous game to ignore the voice and the calling of God. Say what we will about uh, you are unable to outsend the grace of God. That's true. But there's something to be said about saying no to God continually all the days of your life because he may not speak to you anymore. Anyways, the rest of the Israelite army rushes into battle in verse 20. But notice it is the Philistines who strike down the Philistines. Furthermore, we see in verse 21 and 22, the defectors and the deserters are renewed in their faith and rejoin the battle. You see, in other words, the problem of chapter 13. Number one, that they don't have swords. Number two, that there's defectors everywhere. Number three, that there's deserters everywhere. All three of those problems get a solution for right here. And then verse 23, the Lord saves Israel that day and I want to sit here just for a minute, because uh, I want us to think of, how does verse one correspond with ver- or, uh, verse 23? How does verse 23 and verse one correlate? How do they correspond? How do they relate? In verse one, you have Jonathan stepping out in faith. And in verse 23, you have the author saying that the Lord is the one who has saved Israel. So what's, what's the connection then? The connection is this: How did the Lord save Israel? How did the Lord save Israel? See, most of us in our life, when we have problems, we're just expecting God to just kind of reach down out of nothingness and kind of just solve our problems for us. Like, if we're honest, like in our prayer life, we're just like, Lord, just like a zap, a bolt. I was talking with a friend the other day whose uh, car battery had died, and someone made the joke, well, we just need Zeus to zap it with a bolt of lightning. And at first I was like, ah, this feels like blasphemy. But I was like, wait a minute, like a lot of us do that with our Christian God. Lord, just, just zap it with lightning. It's because we've spiritualized all every aspect of our faith, so much so that our faith is merely what we believe in here and not what we do out there. You see, the connection between verse 1 and verse 23 is this. God uses Jonathan to save the day through the faith and the courage of one man. Now, ultimately, this does point us to Jesus Christ. Jesus will have a death and resurrection story, a story about going down and a story about coming up again. Jonathan here is a prototype of David who points us to Jesus as God's ultimate anointed one, the God man by whom the world will be saved. God uses Jonathan in this story to save Israel. God uses Jesus in the story of the cross to reconcile the world to himself. But friends, God also uses you in accomplishing the saving work that he has in the lives of others. Don't miss this. God might use you, friends. You see, the story of Jonathan and Saul in this chapter is not merely a story of contrasting uh, Saul and Jonathan, Saul being the, the bad guy and Jonathan being the good guy, though that is, but it also calls us into the story to know who to emulate, to know who to follow after, who to be like. Will you be crippled with fear like Saul Will you walk in faith like Jonathan? Will you see the world through the lens that the world sees itself through? Or will you see the world through the lens that God sees the world? So I'm about 23 minutes in. Let's see if I can get to this next in the next 20 or so, 15. Uh, After this ignition of the battle by Jonathan, then we see the Israelite army fully engaged in the battle. The scene shifts now to the end of the day in verse 24. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was drooping, dropping. But no one put out his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan... I had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Now you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, what in the world does a story about honey have to do with such a great story about a small weaponless army in the face of full of defectors and deserters in the the, the face of imminent defeat? And what we see in verse 24 is that Saul has put an oath on the people, on the men, the people of God. And he says no one can eat, nobody eats a drop, nothing, until Saul has his won, won his victory fully. But what we find out is that because Jonathan was out walking in faith and walking in confidence of the Lord and being courageous, he never heard this command from HQ. And so he dips his staff in some honey, eats it. And then the men of the army see it and they're like, oh no, the king's son has done messed up. So you can imagine like they're debating, who's going to be the one to tell him, Who's going to be the one to tell him. Finally, somebody uh, musters up some gumption to tell Jonathan what his father commanded. And Jonathan's reply is, is wonderful. He says, you know what, my father's uh, acted foolish. In fact, it would have been better had we all eaten... Along the way, because then we wouldn't be tired, right? He says that the people were faint. He says, look, look, my eyes are bright. And the honey of the land, right, is symbolic as well here, right? It was real honey. But it's symbolic of of what? It's symbolic of the promises that God had said that they would find in the land. And so here, Jonathan is fully enjoying the promises of the land. He says, wouldn't it be better to fight on a full stomach than an empty stomach? Look at verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijan, and the people were very faint. And The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So, so what we have here is a story of uh, uh, Jonathan who was uh, partaking of the honey because he hasn't heard the command from HQ. And then you get this story that, that they continue to, to move the, the Philistines out of the land. But they get to a point where they can no longer help themselves. They see these ox, they see these sheep, uh, and they see these calves, and they butcher them right there on the spot and just begin to eat. Now, verse 31 says that they ate uh, ate them with the blood. In order to understand this story, you have to know a little bit about the law of God that God had given in Leviticus chapter 17, where God had commanded, forbidden his people to eat food with blood. Not because of sanitary reasons, not because of preservation reasons. It wasn't because like, if you eat the blood, you're going to get sick. No, no. God's reason was much more symbolic than that. You see, God had forbidden his people to eat the blood of animals because blood symbolized life. It was life in the animal that symbolized, it was the blood in the animal that symbolized life. And so when someone would eat an animal with the blood, in effect, what they were saying is, this life belongs to me. But in Leviticus chapter 17, God says, don't eat the animal with the blood uh, because in the blood is the life and the life belongs to me. So, so when people would disobey and break this commandment, what they were in a sense saying is putting themselves in the place of God. And so God forbid his people to do that. But these men are so hungry, so tired after a day of fighting on the battlefield that they cannot control themselves. Saul sees the problem and in fact he says, hey, 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 y'all are sinning. Stop, what are you, what are you doing? In verse 33, that's what it says. Uh, so he sets up an altar to the Lord to atone for the sin of the army by e- uh, uh, for eating the blood. So, so, so you must see the issue here, right? Like why are these men so famined? Why are these men so hungry? Was it not because of the command that Saul had given them not to eat? You see, Saul is failing in his relationship to his brothers by putting a weight on them that they cannot bear. And in fact, leads them to seizing something that belongs to God. You see, Saul is the one in trouble here. It was Saul's command, Saul's oath on them not to eat anything of the land. And so they hit a point of complete exhaustion that they just disobey that. And and in fact, they then go on to sin even more so against God himself. You kind of get the picture of what Jesus means when he tells the Pharisees that the, the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move, uh, not willing to move them with their finger. This is kind of what Saul's doing. You see, the, the tension is building here. And so Saul's failed in worship of the Father in chapter thirteen, and he's failed in his work and how he relates to the Israelites in chapter uh, chapter fourteen. Here, finally, we see how he becomes like Cain in the field with Abel. Look at verse thirty-six. Then Saul said, "Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them." Until the morning light, let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But notice, he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you people of the Lord, uh, all the leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son shall be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O God, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in the people Uh, "'In your people Israel, give Thummim.'" Right, he's casting lots here. Uh, "'And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. "'Then Saul said, "'Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan,' "'and Jonathan was taken. "'Then Saul said to Jonathan, "'Tell me what you have done. "'And Jonathan told him, "'I tasted a little honey "'with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. "'Here I am, I will die. "'And Saul said, "'God, do so to me and more also. "'You shall surely die, Jonathan.'" And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair on his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul here in this passage wants to continue to run the Philistines out of town. He wants to continue the fight. But the priest says, "Uh, uh, Let's hold up for a minute. Let's check and ask God. Let's just see, let's just see uh, if the Lord would go with us. And so he does. And in verse 37, we see that, that God does not answer him. Now, the wording used here, uh, that, that God did not answer him, it's, it's already appeared one other place in the book of Samuel. Remember when Samuel was telling the, the, uh, the people of Israel what would happen uh, in choosing a king like the nation's? He said, he said a couple things, he said that uh, this king will merely take, take, take from you. But he ends that uh, list of uh, what would happen with this. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The same phrase repeated here. Saul's prophecy now coming to pass. But notice Saul's reaction to this. He says, well, one of y'all idiots have caused this problem. He said, like, get, all, get all the leaders in here. We're going to figure this out. We're going to figure out who's sinning up in this camp, right? It's a reminder of the story of Achan, right, where uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Israelite army uh, fails to conquer, like, one little city right after taking Jericho. Uh, and and what are they, they're like, hey, hey God, have you, have, you, have you abandoned us? Have you left us? And God tells uh, uh, Joshua, he's like, no, 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 somebody in, in there sinning. He'll find that guy, root him out. So Saul, thinking of that story, he says, hey, uh, one of y'all, obviously, a sinning in here. Get in here. And so they go through this process. He says, uh, by the way, I'm going to put whoever it is, I'm going to put him to death, just like we did with Achan. And so they go through the process of finding out who the person is that committed this sin uh, by casting these lots. And woe and behold, it comes to Jonathan. Now pay attention to verse 43, because this is important. Saul says to Jonathan, what have you done? What have you done? If you were here last week, then you know that this is the same question that was posed to Saul by Samuel when Saul acted foolishly before the Lord. But here he turns the question on his son, though his son had done no wrong. And notice how Jonathan answered. He says, I have tasted the honey. He said, Here I am. I I must surely die, Father. You can kind of sense the sarcasm in his voice a little bit. He said, Here I am. Kill me. What's important is Saul is in is no laughing mood. He's, he's not joking. You see this, right? The same man who just like said, hey, y'all are sinning before the Lord by eating the blood of the flesh. He says, now let me put my own son to death. You can see the, the irony in this, right? When he was approached with the question, Saul, what have you done? He merely offered up excuses. But here, Saul, or Jonathan, his son, uh, uh, he owns it. He says, yeah, this is what I've done, Father. Right? He, he owns what he's done. Here Saul is ready to kill his own son. This speaks about how far down Saul is actually spiraling. Willing to kill his own son for breaking an oath he had no idea about. Which was a bad oath from the beginning. Friends, you will always be willing to justify your own sin. Every one of us will be willing to justify our own sins. The deeper we go into that sin, notice Saul is deep into the weeds at this point. The deeper we move into our sins, the more we will be willing to take dangerous steps to protecting that sin. This is what happens with everyone who, keeps, uh, who begins to keep a little quiet about their pet sins. Well, you know, me and the Lord, we cool on this. It's not true. How do we know what the Lord's cool with? He's given us a book, he's told us what he's cool with. He said, Well, yeah, but mm, it doesn't apply to me. It does. It does, and it's a dangerous path when we begin to say, well, God's okay with my sin. You see that here in Saul's life. He's going deeper down this spiraling pit. Saul is ready to kill his own son, but the people recognize what's actually going on here. They recognize that Jonathan is the one who's in the right, that Jonathan is the one who has worked salvation in Israel. And they say he has worked with God this day. And therefore the people ransomed Jonathan. Jonathan stands, to kind of sum this whole story up, right, there's a lot of of text here. Jonathan stands in the covenant place, uh, in the place of the covenant people of God. The covenant people of God were meant to do what? Trust God, follow his lead. Trust God, follow his lead. Have, Have faith in God. Saul stands in a place of sin and cowardice, choosing to hate his brothers and be paralyzed with fear. Jesus will be the one who ultimately and finally stands in the place of the covenant people of God, friends. Choosing to trust and have faith in God, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we're given two, two men, a father son. By the way, Jonathan is so loyal to his father that uh, he ultimately dies in this story on the battlefield in loyalty to his father. The Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. Listen, our work is then what? What what is our work? So we're called to to love God and what? Love other people. When approached Jesus, they said, Jesus, what's the what's the greatest commandment in all the scriptures? He said, Love God, love, love other people. This is this is this is work, friends. So how do, we, how do we do it? How do we carry out this work? Well, listen, we do it by doing what Jonathan did. right? Jonathan just didn't sit back on the sideline and say, yeah, I have faith. I have faith that God can do all these things. Praise God. And then he went home. That's not what he did. He stepped out in faith. He stepped out in courage and boldness, refused to be counted among the cowards. What this means then is if we are to work in the Christian life, not to earn our salvation, but because and in light of what God has done in Christ for us, then our work is to trust and have faith in God and to follow Jesus, to be more conformed into the image of his son. This means that as we follow Jesus in obedience, we do what he tells us to do. Do you guys know what the Overton window is? And I'm going, what's it in my notes? I'm, maybe I, you guys know what the Overton window is? Political theory here for, uh, for you uh, politic nerds, uh, the Overton window is the, the frame of reference in which people are willing to uh, consider something normative. So, so stay with me here. Uh, marriage is between one man and one woman, right? 50 years ago, everyone would have said, amen, pastor. Even here, we're like, oh. yeah, amen, pastor. That's right. But as the Overton window have shifted, now those who actually hold to that view, the windows over here, we over here, what are we called? bigots, right, ridiculous, right, but our position hasn't changed. The, the window, you got to quit dropping that, the, the window in which uh, the, 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 the society has moved, right, the, the way that the world views uh, the world has changed, but the way that God views the world hasn't changed. And in the life of Christians today, like, our fight will be different than the fight of, of Martin Luther, right? Like, Martin Luther, right? What was he? Reforming the church, right? Why? Because the church had gotten off track on, like, what salvation actually is and who's in charge and what's authority. Listen, in the Baptist church today and in the Western church today, like, we're not really fighting over those things anymore. I mean, there's some, right? What, what is the issue of our day then? We don't know what it is to be man. Right, so get it, I've been reading a lot of church history lately. I'm way over time. Uh, the, the, the early church was consumed with what? Defining who Jesus was. Is he man? Is he God? Is he God-man? Is he, is he part God? Is he, is, he, is, he, is he man wrapped up in God? Did he become God? Has he always been God? Right? That's what the early church was all, like you read uh, early church history, like they were arguing about like what does it mean when the scriptures say that Jesus was God and Jesus was man? Like they were wrestling that out. Like the early church, that's what they wrestled with. Uh, The church of the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, what were they wrestling with? Well, how do we actually become saved, right? And that's how the Reformation comes about. We are saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the Scriptures alone. Well, what's our fight today then, church family? Because we have a fight today. The fight today, the work of the Christian life today is we don't understand what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. We don't understand what it is to be human, that's the great fight of our day. Like, like, that's what, like, if you read what's going on in the world today, people are, like, they're not arguing. The church is no longer arguing over what it means to, uh, for, for Jesus to be both God and man. We're arguing, like, what in the world is a man? What is a woman? How do the two interact? Can you change from one gender to another gender? Right, these are the questions that society is wrestling with today, and we would be, uh, we would be, Uh, foolish not to enter into the fray, to enter into the word and say, this is what the Lord says. That mankind made in the woman or made in the image of God, male and female, he created them. Both in the image of God, both having inherent dignity, worth, and value. Right, so, uh, no, I'm going to lose my 5013C status. Right, so uh, we got a big old issue coming up in November. Everybody heard of it? Yeah, it's pretty big. It's pretty, pretty big, massive issue. Lots of people on both sides, and they say pastors don't like talk politics. And I say, I don't listen to you guys. Um, Yeah, it's incredibly important, incredibly important. And I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but I'll just tell you what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that every person, uh, whether born or not, is made in the image of God, and that the blood lives with God. Like the life is the blood is a symbol of life, and life belongs to God. Therefore, who are we to snuff it out before it ever has a chance? Now we can argue all about what it means to be pro-life or pro-choice and how those two interact. And are we really just caring about babies in the womb or do we care about womb to tomb? We care about all of life in every aspect. That's why we snuff out the darkness wherever we see it. We are not just, we don't just care. Listen, we don't just care about babies in the womb, Right? let me try it again we don't just care about babies in the womb amen? amen we care about little kids we also care about gray heads a lot of y'all gray heads up in here you know what society says about you guys we don't need them we don't need them i don't know we, we we're fighting for the sake of the gospel in all of these areas i wrap this up uh, love god love one another he hasn't left us wondering he's given us a book He showed us how to do it in the person of Christ. We are called to follow after Christ, to love like Christ loved. This means loving our enemies. This means laying down our lives for the sake of the gospel. This means loving God and loving one another. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are. Lord, we could not uh, engage in the society around us without your word. We would be just as dark. We would be just as confused, just as off base, as a pagan society in which we live. But Father, your word is a light to our feet and a light to our path, Father. Uh, You've told us all good things. Lord, it's from your scriptures that we know uh, how we are to treat one another, how we are to love one another. And so Father, Lord, I pray like as Jonathan was courageous and faithful and willingness to walk in faith and not in fear that we would be as well that we would be emboldened and courageous. Lord, no matter how the vote goes, Lord, we know that you've called us to to rescue people who are dying and going to a Christless eternity, uh, eternal damnation. You've called us to sit as the church and snatch people out of the fire. So, Father, I pray we'd be about this work, that you use men and women uh, uh, to, 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 to accomplish your work in the world. So, Father, may we, may we be dialed into this. May we be uh, emboldened in this. May we be uh, uh, looking for opportunities to, to share our faith. May we be looking for opportunities to witness to, the, to a, a lost and dying world of what's actually going on here. Father, may we not be fearful. May we not be timid. May we do everything with gentleness and love, but may we stand fast in the faith. We need your help. Lord, you've called us to worship you. You've now called us to go and work in the world. And we need Jesus and the Holy Spirit to actually help us do that. It's in his name we pray, amen.